Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. This morning I'm very excited for what God's going to do with us here. Uh, I was thinking as I'm preparing for this this morning... My brain started thinking about when Fiona and I first got married. We lived in a one-bedroom flat, and we had a big screen TV. Now, careful when I say big screen, I don't mean like a big flat screen TV. It was a TV that just had a big screen. It also had a big back as well. It was one of those very old, very heavy, big screen box TVs. We called it our big screen TV. <laughs> Somebody had given it to us. But it was an amazing TV in the one respect, because every time we turned it on, uh, it would... It would re- reset itself to its default settings. So it was just a fuzzy screen. And then I'd have to sit. We didn't have the remote, so I'd have to sit in front of it and press in the numbers and, and key it and tune it, tune it, tune it till found, SABZ 1, 2, or 3, and then our TV would be on. And often the TV would be left on because if you turn it off, you had to go through this whole exercise again. Every time somebody turned it off, the default settings would kick in. And, and I remember the frustration often when, when, when I'd come in, I'd get just perfect, sit down, and then go to the loo, and Fee would come, someone's left the TV on again and turn the TV off. Fiona! Default settings had kicked in. I had to sit again and program the TV in. And, the, and when I thought about the why I was thinking about this is that I realized that this old TV had, had this thing, default settings. Like it just would, every time it was turned off, every time something would change, it would re- revert back to what it knew normally. This is where we go. And as I was thinking about that, I thought that actually all of us have innately inside of us as humans, we have this default setting. That whenever pressure comes, whenever pressure hits, there's a a way that uniquely we all respond. When pressure hits, so many of us revert to type. We we can have things going well in our lives, but all of a sudden a bit of a financial squeeze, a bit of a relational squeeze, just just a bit of pressure hits us and we respond in anger or we respond in depression. Or, or something goes wrong in our workspace and the deal doesn't come through as we planned and all of a sudden there's, we, we, we revert to type, self-preservation, to the blame game or sometimes habitual sin, patterns that we, that's the, the place we always revert to whenever we're feeling stressed or tired or anxious or de- broken or frustrated by things not working out. We go back to our original settings. But if you have been around for a while, the last few months, we've been trying to almost in a sense rewire our default settings here. If you're wanting to know what we're doing here at Life Changes, is every week we're patiently preaching the word. It doesn't, sometimes it happens in a moment, but actually often it's line by line, precept upon precept. The word of God goes in our hearts and rewires our default settings. Where we would normally respond in a way, the word of God comes and starts to put something different in us. We've been preaching uh, in, in, in this community about a language of faith. And we, I don't know if you've remembered, but we've, if you haven't, go back and listen to him and listen to him again and again. Because actually, we're needing this to go in to rewire our hearts. We've been talking about take the plunge faith. We've said uh, dramatic pictures in our, in our hearts around, and we've worked scriptures about blind or, or desperate faith. We've spoken again and again about a stretching faith. We talked about last week about a tear the roof of faith. We're trying to, as we work the scriptures, we're getting language and visual images that help to rewire our default settings. And this morning, I want to do a little bit more of that, a little bit more work in our hearts because it's been working in my heart. So the scripture will be on the screen. It's Zechariah chapter 9. It's the second last book of the Old Testament. Chapter 9, verse 9 to 12. It'll be on the screen behind you. Thank you so much, Brett. Uh, behind me in front of you. But this is what it says from the, the NIV version. It says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. 
righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'll take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He'll proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I'll restore twice as much to you. Can you say that word, prisoners of hope? Let's try that one more time. Can you say it? Prisoners of hope. Let me give you some context before we pray and dig into it. This book, this, this passage of scripture, some of you, it's probably not one that you've memorized, probably one that you don't just flick open to. The Bible seems to not intentionally, I try and find Zechariah. I struggle for ages to find the book of Zechariah, I'll be honest. But, but actually, this is a profound text of Scripture. It's actually a prophetic book. This is happening before Jesus' birth. It's prophesying about Jesus in an incredibly accurate way, talking about a king who's going to come to us riding on a donkey, a colt. This is profound prophetic word, but actually it's taking place after 70 years after captivity. So the Israel nation went into captivity, were slaves in Babylon. And uh, Jeremiah and, and Isaiah and all these other prophets have prophesied leading up to and in during the, the, the exile. But Zechariah comes after exile. Seven years have happened. And slowly the people of God are returning back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city. Going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. But they've lost something of their identity. And, in, and a whole generation has come and gone. And, and Zechariah is trying to remind them. He's trying to rewire their default settings. Not to revert back to Babylon. Not to revert back to type. Not to live as free people but living as slaves still. He's trying to rewire their hearts and say to them, Yes, though you were prisoners. Now you're a new type of prisoner. Return to the fortress, you prisoners of hope. He's rewiring the default settings in their heart as they wait for the promised Messiah. And I'm going to say this morning, I believe Zechariah and the whole, uh, whole emphasis of prisoners of hope is something for you and I. So lean in, let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Father, I pray for us this morning that your word would come sharper than a two-edged sword. I thank you, God, that the, the power of this moment does not rest on a preacher. It does not even rest on the listener, God, but I thank you that it rests on your word. But I do thank you, Father God, that you call us to partner with you, partner with your word, your unchanging word. So, Father, would your word find fertile hearts, hearts that are receptive, God, to your word, not based on our merit, not based on what we've done, but based that actually on who you are and what you say is true. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to help us this morning understand what it means to be a prisoner of hope. Somebody who's held captive to hope. Somebody who can do nothing but hope. Somebody whenever the pressure hits, when default settings are clamoring at our door, that actually we have a new setting, one that is aimed at hope, and that we are imprisoned, chained, locked down to hope. I'm praying that for you this morning. So four things from Scripture. Yes, we are gearing up to four things. If you're in church, you're used to three things. Four this morning. We could be here till one. But I'll be quick with them. Number one. As I look at Scripture from this text, our launching pad, number one, we are prisoners of His promises. There's a story in the book of Genesis. For time's sake, please go read them at home. Genesis chapter 37 to 50. It's a whole narrative arc about a man named Joseph. You may be familiar with him, but if not, Joseph's amazing story opens with him as one of the youngest brothers of his family. There's 12 brothers. He's the 11th born. And at this stage, he's the youngest. And, and he gets a promise from God, this incredible vision of what God has got for his life. 
He responds immaturely with that promise, but that promise still stands. God speaks and declares who Joseph is and what Joseph is going to do in the name of the Lord. If that's chapter 37, the opening stanza. If you flick to chapter 50 without reading the middle chapters, you'll see the closing element of this chapter is Joseph in Pharaoh's palace in Egypt, in command over the nation of Egypt and, in, in, and holding Israel's destiny in the palm of his hand. If you just read those two, you'll go, what an amazing story. God promised it and God delivered, multipl- multiplied it on an incredible level into, on this promise. He emphasized this promise to the, the hundredth degree. We see, if you just saw this, the story, the promise and then the palace, you'll go, wow, I want that story. But between the promise and the palace, there are a whole lot of problems. 38 to 49 makes great reading and is much more like my life. But actually, if, for time's sake, I'll give us just some illustration of the story. We have the promise over here. Then, then you see the, the next stanza of his life is something called the pit where he gets this promise. He tells his brothers immaturely that actually I'm going to be in charge over you and your destiny. A bit immature with the promise. But he was expecting his brothers to go, wow, that's amazing, Joe. We love it. We back you, brother. But they don't respond in that way. And they literally let him down into a pit and, and they leave him for dead. One brother has to convince them not to kill him. So actually just leave him for dead. And, and while he's in the pit, this, this, the, if I was Joseph in that moment, I'm going, you know what? These are the guys I'm supposed to trust with my future. For, for the sake of, lack of a better word, I'll say, stuff them. I'll be honest. That's my own wicked heart. I'm like, I'm out of here. I'm kicking out of that story in stanza one. That's how immature I am. I'm like, I've got the promise. It's not working out. I'm out of here. I'm in a pit a million miles away from the promise. The second stanza is that it gets worse because some slave traders come and they slave Joseph. And from the promise, he goes to the pit. Then from the pit, he goes to Potiphar's house. Every location begins with a P. It's amazing. And in part of his house, a little bit of courage comes and he says, you know, I'm going to work hard. And he proves himself. He actually says, I'm not going to sulk. I'm going to, I'm going to give my energy to this thing. I'm going to serve Potiphar as best I can. He gets favor with Potiphar. He rises the ranks from, from the lowly work in the house to being like second in command besides Potiphar. Potiphar leaves him the keys of the house, the alarm codes, and, and, and says, you can even have anything from the fridge while I'm away. And Potiphar goes on a business trip. But the one thing he's withheld is his wife, obviously, and she's known as Potiphar's wife cool name. And Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph. And while the husband's away, the Bible does tell us that Joseph's an incredibly good looking man. So if you want to picture somebody, just if you want. I'm a visual guy. It just helps sometimes. Um, that's how Fiona pictures most characters in the Bible. <laughs> just a joke. That's why she's leaving. Um, but He's attractive. He catches Potiphar's wife's eye. So she comes. She saunters over. She starts to try and seduce him. And in this moment, I can imagine Joseph going, you know what? I've been thrown up it. I've got this promise. Maybe this is the way. Potiphar's probably going to, I won't get much further with Potiphar. He's given me as far as I can go. Maybe if I get in with his wife, maybe she'll be the way that this promise comes about. Maybe she's the one who's able then, because I've got some favor with her, she'll be able to push me for higher promotion. That's how possibly most of our brains will think. We see the situation, maybe. We start to justify taking a detour, justify uh, the default setting will set in. Hey, let me go under pressure. Let me go for that. But Joseph does something profound. He flees. He runs away from Potiphar's wife. And uh, she, cries, she cries out. And she's so embarrassed by this that she starts lodging false allegations. Says, he tried to rape me. This is the Bible, not days of our lives. This is real. And, and what happens then? Potiphar's wife comes back. Potiphar comes back, meets his wife. He has a story and says, actually, this is ridiculous. Has Joseph been thrown into prison on false allegations? Now, if I'm Joseph at this stage, I'm going, now I'm definitely out. I tell I have this promise. My brothers let me down. Temptation came, and I was actually righteous. 
I ran away, honored him, and because of that, I get thrown in jail. Now I'm done. It just gets, seems like he's getting further and further away from the promise actually happening. And finally, so he's in the pits. He's in Potiphar's house. He gets to prison. He's sitting in Egypt a million miles away from how I believe he feels the promise will turn out. And in there, two guys come to him and say, we've also had promises. We've also had dreams. Can you help us with our dreams? Now, again, I'm going, my dream's not happening. My promise is not happening. I'm not dealing with your stuff now, guys. This is, I'm not, I've, I've helped other people. I've helped Potiphar and his household, and it didn't go well for me. That's what I would do. But Joseph, again, responds differently. They come with their dreams. He interprets their dreams, and one of them actually gets released, and he says, as that guy gets released, remember me in prison, and what happens, that guy goes and forgets about him in prison. At every turn, Joseph, though, refuses to revert to type. You see, the amazing thing in this whole story, all the way from the promise, the pit, part of his house, the prison, all the way up to the palace, there's an amazing phrase in every single stanza that follows Joseph's life that dogs him throughout this text. It says this, and the Lord was with Joseph. You'll find that phrase multiple times from chapter 37 to 50, and the Lord was with Joseph. In the pit, and the Lord was with Joseph. In part of his house, and the Lord was with Joseph. In the prison, and the Lord was with Joseph. The promise of the Lord followed him all the way through. I, I want to say this to you and I this morning. Don't doubt in the dark what God has promised you in the light. We, we have our little boy, as you saw, Benjamin, three months, about three months tomorrow. And uh, this little guy, he, he's an amazing little guy, but for three months we've been introduced to something called colic. I don't know if any of you know about it. It's something that you, you, can't, you can't get the gist of it on Wikipedia. You have to enjoy it, or I should say endure it. It's uh, something that doctors can't fully diagnose. They don't know fully. They've got many theories and suggestions, but it basically means he cries and he cries and he cries nonstop. And I want to say there's been moments, and again, it might sound such a, a, a small problem. Yes, it is in comparison to other things that might befall us. But there's been moments where I've been walking Benji at night because of his colic. And at 3 a.m. in the morning, when you've traced those steps up and down the lounge multiple times just to allow you some space for Fiona to have some sleep, and you've put, you've put what are these things called? Earphones. I was like, earpods. Are they earpods these days? Yeah. You put those in your ears and you're listening to me just trying to drown out, drown out the crying and, you, and, you, and you're praying. And then all of a sudden you can feel this frustration. You're going, it's not his fault. But I'm going, oh, but I'm not too sure I like this kid right now. Now, <laughs> I do love him, I promise you. But you know what the amazing thing that sustained us is the picture. Sustained us was that the doctor said to us, there's not much you can do. Here's some colic drops. You can try this thing. You can try this. Have you tried this? Try this. They said, but ultimately, the best, best thing is you're going to have to grin and bear it, get some, some solutions, pass the baby off to granny sometimes, do these, 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 make sure you don't get overly frustrated. But here's the good news. Usually colic goes after three months. Can I tell you, some nights in the dark when we've tried everything, and we don't know what else to do. And frustration, I can feel default settings going, frustration and anger and resentment even over this child. I'm being honest. At three in the morning, sometimes that just escalates. The thing that has sustained me is I'm going, three months, three months, three months, three months. Now, I want to say that the incredible thing is that actually there's moments in those moments I felt like a prisoner to frustration. I felt like a prisoner to long nights, emotional moments. But I had a promise. I had a promise. In three months, this will pass. Now, I want to say, just like Joseph, you and I, there's moments in our lives where brothers will let us down. The brothers literally let him down into a pit. 
But I want to say that brothers, sisters, even colleagues, friends, family members, people even on the left and the right of you, people who you esteem, myself included, there will be moments when we will let you down. I want to ask you in that moment, will you be a prisoner of his promise or a prisoner of offense? So many people never leave the pits because they've allowed themselves to become prisoners of offense rather than holding on to the promise. Let me say, just like Joseph, temptation will come knocking. Temptation will come not knocking. And I can tell you, temptation is always dressed up to look better than it is. Potiphar's wife looked really good and appealing to the eye in that moment because temptation always looks like an easy way out. Temptation always looks more beautiful than it actually is. And in that moment when temptation comes, will you be a prisoner of the promises or a prisoner of the lust of your flesh? So many people never leave the Potiphar's house, never move on to God. They settle where they are because they've allowed the easy way out to grip their hearts. Just like Joseph, you will be used and abused and looked over. In a prison, other men used his gift for their own ends and they forgot him. And I'm telling you, they'll happen. In your life, in your church, in your business, in your family, there'll be moments when you feel used and abused and no one's, no one's taking notice of me, no one's commending me for my gift. They just use me in this church. They, my family just ignore me when I've slaved for them all day. There'll be moments when you'll be feel used and abused. I want to say, are you going to be a prisoner of the promise or a prisoner of a bad attitude? So many people don't make it past the prison because they've allowed that thing to settle. I, I, I want to say in this moment, when I say prison of his promises, I'm not meaning a, a charismatic, name it and claim it, confession type faith. If you've been around church in the 90s, we were just told, say it enough times till your heart believes it. I am the head and not the tail. I'm above and not believe. All the, the five of us who were in church then know that sort of stuff. But I'm not saying it in that way of just say it and believe it. No, I'm saying that allow the word, the word of God and the promises of God to override your default settings. And can I tell you, that's not a one-time thing. It happens line upon line, precept upon precept. That's why the word of God needs to come again and again and again and chisel away at our hard hearts, chisel away at our easy way out, chisel away at these other moments. So until we become prisoners of his promise, there's no other way I can go. Joseph had the promise, he ended up in the palace, but he was held through the pits, part of his house, and the prison because the promise of God never left him. Are you a prisoner of his promise this morning? Secondly, I want to say we're prisoners of his presence. There's two narratives in the, in the book of Daniel. We're skipping now a couple of centuries. We're going through multiple books. We get to the book of Daniel, which is in the Old Testament. And there's two well-known narratives there. And there's a man, there's three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this story takes place before Zechariah prophesied, Zechariah 9. This is in Babylon, in exile, and three guys in a foreign country. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they come uh, in front to face to face with a tyrant, a, uh, uh, the king of the time. And this king comes up to him, and he says to them, this basically the decree for time's sake, he says to them, you will bow down to the, the statue of me, you will bow down like everybody else, and if you do not, you'll be thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, I think in church, we've almost characterized it, we've colored them in, in children's church, we've colored the flames, the fiery furnace. It sounds like almost... It's just become cliched. Fiery furnace, capital punishment, the electric chair. Bow down to me or you get the lethal injection. You're done. That's the, that's the equivalent of what's going on here. And these three guys say something profound. They say in response to this, as eventually they get hauled in front of the government and fall out in front of the king. Why are you the only guys refusing to obey this edict? And they say these three things. They say, throw us in the fire. God will save us. Secondly, they say, God can save us. And the most powerful of all, they say, and even if he does not, we will not bow to you. 
And this profound moment, they get thrown in the fire. They, tell, they turn the fire up hotter and hotter and hotter. they to the, the, the biggest level, Chernobyl-type levels. Sorry, I've been watching a bit of HBO TV. But Chernobyl level. And, and, and the incredible thing happens, a dramatic moment, as all of a sudden they realize these guys are not perishing. They're actually just standing there. I can imagine the heat is burning. These guys are just having a conversation. I'm sweating a little bit, eh? Shadow, is that, is that you smelling? Hey, you need to put deodorant on this morning. And this fire blazing. You're like, what is going on? Then they realize that they're not alone. A fourth man appears in the fire. Daniel doesn't tell us much more about it. doesn't start to say this is who he was. But just a fourth man appears who looked like the son of man. In my reading of scripture, Jesus just appeared in the fire with them. I've got this, guys. And then Hillsong started to write the song. There's another in the fire. <laughs> not at that moment. But you know, the amazing story, if you keep reading, there's the named after the man Daniel. Daniel has a similar encounter where actually they set up a trap. They say, pray to, you must pray only, this. you mustn't pray to any other gods. You must only pray to this foreign king. Daniel refuses to do that for time's sake. Three times a day, he goes to his usual, the way he usually does it. He would open the windows, not doing it secretly, and pray to the Lord his God, the one true God. And because of that, he gets in trouble again, gets thrown in front of the government, in front of the king, who's now a bit disappointed as Daniel, because he likes Daniel, but he has to follow through with his, 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 his judgment. And Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den, a more elaborate and more entertaining form of torture. And as he's thrown in there, they seal the door, and all through the night, the king is worried, because the king wants to know, will Daniel make it through? Because these lions are hungry, they're ravenous, no one makes it out their lives alive. And the morning, he rushes down, opens up the, 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 the den. He looks in, and he sees the lions lying there with their mouths shut, and Daniel just chilling. How's the king? How did you sleep? And it's this amazing moment where Daniel, in that moment, I, I want to say this, in enemy territory, these guys, are, they're in the minority, their backs are against the wall, and they're still able to stand on their convictions. What happens here? My little thought here is that convictions stand not because of high reliance on principles, but rather on a deep revelation of God's presence. We, people, we, we reduce convictions to what are your principles. Principles are, will not be enough to hold you and sustain you. I've seen way too many pastors, government officials, presidents, Tiger Woods, uh, celebrities who are men of high principle, women of high principle, but when pressure comes, they fall down. Because principle is not enough. It's a revelation of his presence that will sustain you, that will hold you. And as I read the story, I love the fact that actually in story one, we see a visible demonstration of God's presence, the fourth man appearing. In story two, there's an invisible demonstration of his presence. We're not told that there was a presence of God was in there. It was just like this invisible demonstration of God's presence. And here's an incredible moment that I realized that, that for me, there's moments. I was in Zimbabwe a few years ago, and I got up to preach at a, at a conference where there was multiple hundreds, just over a thousand people. There was a huge crowd, and, and the arrows, the band arrows had warmed up the crowd for the preach. How's that? And, but there was just a level of faith and excitement. And I remember walking out to preach, and I remember trembling, but I just, I knew that God was with me. I just knew that God, it felt like there was a man next to me. It felt like whatever I said was received with such faith. I appeal for the gospel. People sprinted to the front weeping, giving their lives to Christ. And I remember going, this is what I was made for. This is powerful. But I tell you, there's also been times where I've, uh, I was thinking back to last year, where I've walked into a home on the basis of a phone call where, the, where death has entered a home in the most disturbing circumstances. And there's no band in the background 
And there's just that airy silence filled with weeping. And people praying, please, what, what must we do? Please, what must we do? How do we move on from this moment? And the body's there, and I don't know what to do. And I, and I lie there, and I don't have a deep physical sense. I'm not there going, oh, this, I feel the presence of God in this moment. But there's an invisible sense of His presence is there. I, I want to say in this moment that what, that this, this faith, that bring a prisoner to His pre- presence, is not based on feelings or emotions. It's based on our understanding of who God is. And I want to say that what separates, you know, often we say this in Christian circles, we say this, it almost becomes light and fluffy. God with you. God is with you, man. You know, it's like almost on a coffee cup. God is with us, you know. The Lord is my shepherd. And we can say it in a light and fluffy way, but what separates the light and fluffy hallmark card faith from a people who are prisoners to the presence of God is, put it, what, is where you put your weight. Let me explain it this way. That if I had a chair right now, I get a chair, let me get it. This chair right now is a, take some faith for me to say, let me tell you about this, let me tell you and declare about this chair. This chair can sustain my weight. Come on, who believes that in this house this morning? Amen, amen. Preach at this. I see this chair. I see that chair. You can do it. And many Christians leave that, their relation with Jesus with that. They understand we've got this head nod. Yeah, God is with me but we never put our weight on it. Our faith becomes that of substance. The Bible, Hebrews even says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Substance. Sub meaning under, stance meaning our position. Where are we putting our position? Where are we put, what is underneath us? What is sustaining us? Which is holding us? Can our faith becomes, uh, faith. I won't be able to do that in a few more years. Faith becomes faith in this chair. This chair, I can declare it and declare it and declare it, but faith becomes faith when I actually put my weight on it. Now I know I'm trusting that this thing is going to hold me. This thing is going to sustain me. That is what faith is. Where people who not just declare God is with you, but people who lean and put their weight, their full weight, prisoners of his presence, the people put their weight on the fact that God is with me. That's good preaching. Sorry, I was encouraging myself. Good word, Gabe. Prisoners. Prisoners of his presence. I want to tell you number three, prisoners of his power. I pray you go read these narratives. This is not just some sucking it out of the, the, the air for us. This is the word of God needs to de- rewire our default settings. Number three, prisoners of his power. There's another story of another prison in the, in the scriptures, Acts chapter 16. A man named Paul and his mate Silas, they are hitting revival like revival hasn't been seen for many years. They're preaching in a city called Philippi. Salvations are happening. People are being slain in the spirit. People are getting set free from demons. It's, it's causing a revival. And they're also riling up the, the religious elite and the people whose economies are being taint, tarnished by this moment. So they're having revival and riots. People are just being stirred up in anger and joy by Paul and Silas. This is like a minister's dream. Everywhere they go, the glory of God is coming. And they responded with much joy, but then also the, the people get, get antagonized by this. The, the populace come and grab Paul and Silas. They drag them to the government. They again say false accusations against them. And the government agree with the people and have Paul and Silas thrown into jail. Now, maybe I just over-exaggerate this, but I'm going sometimes, if, if I've had a great day in church and people have like got saved and mad, can you imagine this place spilling out the back and people are getting set free and it's just like it's wild and healings and exciting moments and I'm just like, wow, this is brilliant. We go to the next, we go to the shops and there's many more people get healed and it's just chaos all the way home. I can't even get home with my roast chicken from, from checkers. I'm like going, just it's amazing. This, he, oh, you're getting healed, you're getting healed, you're getting salvation. It's just like wild days. And as I get home, the cop's like, yeah, actually, it's too much. You're going to jail. I would sit there going, hey, God, 
this is not, what, what is happening here? I'm not understanding what's happening here. And, and can I tell you, if I'm honest, I think so many of us, when things like that happen, we become pr- prisoners of our frustrations. We become prisoners of disappointment. But not this, not this duo, Paul and Silas. They sing in prison. And what should be coming out of their mouth in that moment is going, you know what, let's, let's tone it down. Silas, we've done this charismatic thing. Maybe we should just be like more reformed and calm, orderly services, and then bless the people and go. Because whenever like, the power of God comes, we get in trouble. Let's tone it down. That, that's what I would be doing. But Paul and Silas don't give in to, to their frustrations or their disappointment or their, 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 yeah, well, all these different things. They start to sing. They start to sing. And they start to declare the goodness of God. They start to say, it's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. They're like, oh, Jerry does it much better. Michelle does it much better. But let's keep singing. And they, they start declaring out in faith. They start singing. They start, it says they're praying and singing hymns to God. And it says around midnight. And at this moment, as they start to declare God's name and declare who he was, not their frustrations, not their, their disappointment, but declare who God is, it says there's a mighty earthquake. Earthquake uh, It happened quick. And an earthquake, as we say. Uh, uh, come on, guys, keep up. And it says the prison doors were shaken, so much so that the prison doors exploded open, their chains fell off. This was an earthquake of earthquake. Well, others were running in terror. These guys were just kept on singing and the chains fell off. And then the, they, they just was, they stood there. They thought we could run away. But actually, if God's opened this jail, we're not going to take it into our own hands. We're going to wait here and trust that God's still going to lead us further. The prisoner God is, realizes that with this earthquake, all the prisoners are probably going to flee. But Paul and Silas say, no, 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 we're all still here. Don't, don't, don't take the punishment upon yourself. We're still here. And he's so perpleased by the power of God matching the, their compassion in their hearts for him that he gets saved. He takes them to his house. His whole household gets saved. It's like the revival doesn't get stopped. It doesn't get chained by man's oppression, by man stopping and man saying that's enough. But what is so huge for me is that actually praise fuels our faith. Why do we sing every week at church? Is it because God forgets who he is? Or is it because we forget who he is? It's, it's for Him. It's for Him alone. But when we sing who God is, our hearts swell and remind ourselves, that is who God is. Yeah, but my prison looks like that. Yeah, but I'm, I'm a prisoner to His power, not to earthly power, not to boss's power, not to my family's power, but to His power. And I always say this can't be just a Sunday thing. There's moments, I tell you, there's moments where I, I remember last year driving in my car and there's two situations that seemed, seemed too large in my head. There was a friend who had sinned in such a, a, a grievous way in, over his wife and his family. And I remember thinking, God, apart from your mercy, this story is going to end in much pain. Apart from your mercy. And I was crying out for that friend. In the same moment, there was a friend as well who suffered from a debilitating disease, illness for a long time. And people prayed and prayed and prayed. And nothing seemed to happen. Actually, the more we prayed, it seemed to get worse. And I thought, I don't know what else to pray anymore, God. I felt the prison of disappointment, the prison of frustration in the car. I was going, I don't know what to pray. And I remember putting on a CD in the car. And it was the only song I had. And I, and I, and I remember just on the freeway starting to belt out who God was, singing at the top of my lungs. Singing, singing, not hitting the notes anymore because I started to cry. It was ugly cry. Uh, it just, I mean, people driving past probably were thinking, is he that frustrated that Wackhead Simpson came and took the job? Sorry. <laughs> but I was singing, I was singing, and I, and I remember sending a voice note to someone telling them that suddenly faith started stirring my heart for these two situations. I listened back to that voice note. It was quite incomprehensible with all the tears. But I remember faith starting to rise in my heart. 
And can I tell you, both those stories, both those situations have had resolutions that are only possible because of the power of God. I'm not saying that my prayers in that moment change the situation, but God's heart is unlocked when we lift up His name. God, God's power is linked with praise for some reason. When we declare who He is, it opens His hand to move in power. That we, I, I can't explain all the ins and outs of it, but I want to say that we serve a God who still breaks open prison doors. We serve a God who still sets the captive free. And I really want you to hold our heart that we need to be a people who say that no matter what befalls me, I am a prisoner to his power. What does that mean? It means it's not our last resort. A prisoner to his power. It's not means that actually it's only for some people, people who've really got it good or people who've got a really charismatic expression of faith. No, as a believer, you and I, prisoners of hope means we are prisoners of his power. Prisoners to the God who has a strong right arm, mighty to save. Finally, this morning, we're prisoners of hope, prisoners of his promise, prisoners of his presence, prisoners of his power. Finally, prisoners of his purposes. Fourth and final story is a man named John the Baptist. We're leaping everywhere this morning. John the Baptist, the story is through the majority of the first portion of all the Gospels. But his story actually begins even before Zechariah prophesies in a story called, and a prophet's name is Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40. It's a prophetic word many, 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 many years before this guy is even born. And the prophetic word is about Jesus coming, but there's also this like side note about another man who will come before Jesus, who will prepare the way for Jesus. John the Baptist is so, his life is, is he's like this giant of the faith. His, his life was prophesied alongside Jesus multiple centuries before his life begins. John the Baptist is a giant among men because actually the Bible tells us when, when Jesus was in the womb of Mary and John was in the womb of her cousin Elizabeth, it says that John, when they're in the womb, this is for you, Amy, for your baby, but the two moms got together and it says that John the Baptist, recognizing Jesus in his, in his aunt's womb, leaps. John the Baptist knew this is the one. He's not even born yet. Now, this is some kid. I'm just like, this is some kid. Keep reading his story. He's an amazing man because actually he's the first to recognize the divinity of Jesus. From a long way off, he's in the wilderness and he looks and he sees Jesus coming out and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God slain to take away the sins of the earth. This is an amazing man. Eyes of faith that see. Jesus spoke about this man. Jesus, uh, John, John says this. John says, I must decrease. He must increase. And John actually says, John had all this huge following, these disciples. He's a celebrity. He was, he was tackling the government and the political powers and the religious powers of the day. He had this huge following. But when Jesus came, John said to them, go follow him. I'm done. That's the one I came to prepare for. John is this profound guy. Jesus said this about John. Jesus himself said, no man born of woman is greater than John. It's like, what a, what a commendation. Like in that moment, Joseph, ah, he was cool, but John. Daniel, yeah, 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 he's good, but John. Paul, yeah, yeah, but John. John is this giant of the faith. But then there's something that happens in his life. He's preaching truth to political power, and he runs afoul of a man named Herod, and Herod's wife at the time. Herod's wife has got an axe to grind who hates John and, and what he is preaching. And because of that, John gets thrown into prison. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 11. John is thrown into prison, and he's actually waiting his execution by the most, de most disastrous way. Here his wife says, I want John's head chopped off and put on a platter. That is John's fate. John is waiting for it. And now John, this man, Isaiah 40, from, from beyond his birth, from the womb, when he leapt for joy, from the wilderness, where he's saying, there's the one. And actually, no man is greater than John. He's this incredible guy. He's told his disciples go there. He's this, he's this incredible figure in Scripture. 
And in prison, he says this. He calls the last remaining of his disciples and says, could you go and ask Jesus if he really is the one we were waiting for? All of a sudden, default settings kick in. Under pressure, in moments of, of desperation, he's got all this track record. But in that moment, default settings set in. And I, I, in this moment, it's like almost like him going, I know Jesus is the one, I've seen it, but, but this situation that I found myself in surely can't be the purposes of God. Surely this can't be what Jesus was talking about. Maybe you, you hear today, I want to say, you lost your job. The sale didn't go through. The illness wasn't healed. Someone died. The relationship hasn't been restored. Sometimes we think that surely that can't be God's purpose for my life. Let me tell you, in that moment, John the Baptist's heart starts to go fuzzy. Default settings kicking in. And then all of a sudden, he hears he's a disciple of Jesus returning. I've got word from Jesus. Now, if I'm John, and I've said, send for Jesus. Ask him, is he really the one? I'm hoping that Jesus will come, and he will send me a promise. Just like, you know, Joseph, he got a promise. Maybe I'll get a promise that's all going to work out. Send me a promise, Jesus. Then I can believe. But Jesus doesn't come with a promise. I'd hope that Jesus himself maybe would come and visit me. We're cousins. We've done ministry together. I've given all my disciples, come visit me, Jesus. Come and get, bring a care package. Come and tell me, it's, it's, it's okay, John, you've done well. Jesus doesn't come himself. The presence of Jesus in that sense doesn't come. There's this amazing moment where I would think maybe he's going to come and bust open the prison doors. He's done that with, he'll do that with the earthquake with the, Paul and Silas. Do that now. Do that thing now, Jesus. Earthquake, prison doors, I'll come and I'll help you. I'll support your ministry. I'll go underground like, you know, the, I'll, I'll do it. We can do this, this incredible thing that's going on here. No, but Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus sends word and sends him a scripture and says this. Jesus says, tell John, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, lepers are being cleansed, the deaf are, deaf are hearing, the dead are being raised, and the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. So just, just to let you know what Jesus is doing there, Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61. Now John, his life began by being quoted by Isaiah 40. John knows Isaiah. He knows Isaiah. So when Jesus says, starts going, I can imagine, he says, Jesus says, the blind are seeing. He's like, yeah, 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 come on. Why? Because Isaiah 61 says, the blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the lepers are being cleansed, the deaf are hearing, the dead are being raised, the good news is being proclaimed to the poor, and the prisoners are being released from their captivity. That's what Isaiah 61 says. So if I was John, I'm going, come on, I'm getting charismatic. As Jesus, with every word, I'm getting on my seat, I'm like, Amen! Come on, the deaf are seeing. Yes, the blind are being raised. Yes, the good news is preaching. And, and the prisoners? No, Jesus didn't say the prisoners. He stopped before that part. What? Jesus didn't say it. He, didn't, he misquoted Isaiah, or maybe he quoted it correctly for that context. Jesus says he landed with the gospels being proclaimed to, proclaimed to the core. Poor, blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me. So here's the paraphrased version. I am the one, John. And you're going to die in there. My purpose will stand. Wow. What am I trying to say in this moment? Is that actually when we are people who are prisoners of hope, we, pr we become prisoners of his purpose. Sometimes I wish it would work out in my way, my purposes. But I want to tell you, sir, ma'am, that if you're sitting here today and you feel like you've been in a prison, and you say, actually, I haven't seen a way out. My health has not got better. My, my kids haven't got better. I've prayed. I've trusted. I, I want to tell you, God is a God who is not a formula. 
But he says, my purpose is stand. I can do none other. There's, this is what God does. This is who he is. And his purposes, though, are always good, always true, and you can always trust them. That should, that should bring confidence to our souls, that actually nothing can befall us, nothing can happen to us that is outside of his hand. Let me go back to the scriptures, Zechariah 9, verse 9 to 12. Actually, that whole prophecy as we land, it starts off, it ends off with telling us that we are prisoners of hope, but it begins with telling us why we're prisoners of hope. Because it's prophesying about a man named Jesus. And it says, Jesus, see, your king comes to you riding on a donkey. That happened. All other kings would come in parades. They would go before, or people would come to the kings themselves. But this king will be different. He'll come to you, and he'll come in a lowly manner, humbly. humbly, And literally, he'll come on a donkey to his people. Talking about Jesus. And when we think about Jesus, I want to tell you about Jesus this morning. That G, the God is speaking in the book of 1 Corinthians. It says that all of God's promises. You want to be a prisoner to his promise? Let me tell you about his promises. All God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. We're prisoners of his promise. I want to tell you that in Jesus, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus, I never, we are prisoners of his presence. He'll always be with us. He walks with us. Can I tell you, he says this, that my power is made perfect in your weakness. We are prisoners to his power. That when you're weak, when your situation seems impossible, we are prisoners to his power because I can go nowhere else. I, I love the fact, he says this in the book of Isaiah, Jesus speaking, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. We are prisoners to his purpose. The enemy can come and attack. The enemy can take your life. The enemy can, can bring disaster. But can I tell you, he can never trump the master because his purpose is to stand above the enemy. What man can do to you, what man can hold against you, what man can destroy, the Father says, but I trump it all every time. The disciples say this as I, as I close. When Jesus preaches a word like this, that's a, quite a hard word at times. Challenging. He says, if you don't eat of my flesh or drink of my blood, you can have no part of me. Quite a, not a very popular sermon. Vampire Christianity. He preaches this word, and it says the crowds left him. The crowds were confused. They were like, that sounds weird. That sounds barbaric. We're out of here. And Jesus looks around. It's just the disciples. And as he looks at them, he says, don't you guys want to go as well? And they fully didn't get it either. I can imagine. They're like, oh, I didn't fully understand it either. But they say this amazing line. They say, where else can we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. I want to tell you, my prayer is that you and I would become people like that who will become prisoners, captive. Where else can we go? Prisoners of hope. Where else can I go but the hope that he's got for me? Where else can I go but the promises that he's got for me? Where else can I go but the presence that he's got for me? Where else can I go but the power that he holds? Where else can I go but his purposes? That no matter what befalls me, that actually I'm a prisoner to this, that other prisoners can come and hold me captive, but I'll never be held captive by because I'm already captive to one thing. His promises, his presence, his power, his purposes. That's what it means to be a prisoner of hope. So this morning, I want to say maybe you're here today, and you're sitting here and you felt like a prisoner to sin. You've tried to get free. You've tried to break that addiction. You've tried to break that response system. You've tried to get rid of that default setting that you always seem to go back to. Maybe you've been a prisoner to your past. Your default setting is always to blame what happened before. Always to subconsciously go, but if that had been different, life would be, wouldn't be like this. Maybe you're a prisoner to that memory all the time. Maybe you're a prisoner to your fear. Anxiety grips you. Every time you want to step out in faith, anxiety holds you back or memory holds you back or something will not let you step forward. I want to say this morning that Jesus became a prisoner bound hand and foot. 
and was led like a lamb to the slaughter so that we could be set free from our sin, free from our past, free from our fear, but set free so that we could be prisoners of hope. This is the gospel. I pray you and I receive it. Can we close our eyes in this moment? This morning, if you're here and you felt like a prisoner to your sin, and you say, I've tried to wash away that guilt and I cannot do it. I've tried to make promises, but I cannot do it. I've tried to be more present myself. I say, I'll go to church more, but that seems not to be doing the trick. I've tried to, to, to stand in my own strength, but I, I cannot do it. I want to tell you today, sir, ma'am, is the day to surrender your sin to him and say, Jesus, set me free from this sin so I can be bound to your righteousness. If you're here today and you need to give your life to Jesus, give your life to Jesus. I don't mean make a, a church commitment, not now, just, hey, this is what we do at the end of a service, but actually saying, Jesus, I have never fully surrendered my life, given it over to you and say, I am willing to be a prisoner of Christ Jesus. For true freedom is found being bound to you. If that's you this morning, no one's looking around. I love you to lift your hand as high as you can so I can pray for you. Is there someone, anyone here who needs to surrender their heart to Jesus? Thank you. Is there anyone else? Thank you, sir. Father, I thank you for these two people who've put up their hands. I thank you, Father God, that, that true salvation, salvation meaning a spacious place, meaning freedom, meaning healing, deliverance would come to their lives. I thank you, Father God, that today as their hands go up as a symbol of repentance, I thank you their heart would truly turn. And you promise us in your word that you take a heart of flesh, our rebellious heart, our heart that kicks against you, and you give us a heart of stone, and you give us a heart of flesh. You soften it, and you pour your spirit. And I pray, do this by your mighty power, Jesus. I thank you that you say in this moment, behold, the old is gone, the new has come, new creations. I thank you, Father, for these two sons and daughters. I think that as they respond to you, that today, God, they get set free, free from their sin, free from their past, free from their fears, and get bound to you. I thank you, Father God. Seal that by the work of your Holy Spirit. Now for the rest of us, Jesus, I pray, without any fanfare, I pray, Father God, that we surrender our default settings to you. However you need to do it, lift your hands, open your hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray right now for my friends. I pray for my heart here. At times a rebellious heart that, and, and a heart that loves almost anarchy, my way my purposes, my ability to make this happen, my rights. But today, God, I surrender my rights, my purposes, my power. Say, Jesus, would you rewire my default settings? I thank you, Father God, right now, I declare over every single heart, burn that, brandish that into our souls, into our marriages, into our, our, our jobs, into our finances, into our, our response systems, that we are prisoners of hope, prisoners of hope. The future might look bleak, the, 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 the landscape might look dark, but we are prisoners of hope. I thank you, Father God, we'd be anchored to this. Where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I thank you, Father, for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.